This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. So whenever I face any challenge, I look at what other people uh, went through. And uh, I'm like, you know, whatever the challenge it is, I am privileged. And um, let me focus on the privilege that I, that, that, that I have and uh, count my blessings. And then uh, this challenge is nothing compared to what those other people had. My guest this week has been described as a lioness of Africa. And after speaking to her, I know why. Her name is Claire Akamanzi, and in addition to being a lawyer, a Rwandan cabinet member, and CEO of the Rwanda Development Board, she is a champion for the continent. Claire believes in Rwanda, its people, its bright future, and the bright future of Africa more generally. She has been instrumental in the economic growth that Rwanda has experienced, and in this episode you'll hear her share how this and the other successes the country has seen were possible. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and, you know, I said you have a lot of work to do. You have an amazing resume. But I want to know if there are things on your resume that are missing that we should know about you. Well, uh, thank you, Mungi, first of all, for, for, for talking to me. Um, what, is on, what is not on my resume that people should know about me? I think that I'm a very patriotic Rwandan. Um, even though I wasn't born in Rwanda, and even though I spent uh, the, the, the budding first years of my life outside Uganda, uh, outside Rwanda, mostly in Uganda, I am um, extremely uh, uh, patriotic and uh, very much, um, very much happy and proud to be part of uh, rebuilding the country that we call Rwanda. And uh, when I see everything that Rwanda has been uh, developing, every year there's something more we do. Of course, under the leadership of our president, uh, Paul Kagame, who has been uh, spearheading the new Rwanda for quite a long time. I, I'm just very happy to be part of contributing to Rwanda's growth. And that just makes me uh, even more patriotic. Mm. Well, you said that you were, you know, you were not born in Rwanda. You were born in Uganda to Rwandan refugee parents. And I wonder what effect that had on your life and sort of the path that you've taken. Well, uh, first of all, I think one thing that um, has made me appreciate the value of being a citizen of a country was because of the circumstances under which I was born. Uh, both my parents and my grandparents uh, were refugees at the time that I was born, and they left the Rwanda as very young uh, children. Both my parents were nine years old when they left Rwanda. And uh, um, as you can imagine, being in a foreign country, even though we were born um, in Uganda, there were so many things that reminded us that we were not Rwandan. And uh, from how our parents were treated at work uh, to people really asking you exactly where is your home village, and then you have to be vague about that. Um, and then not being able to speak a specific local language because um, um, many, many people spoke their local languages, even though they came from different parts of the country. But for us, we never really spoke a, a specific local language. We tried to learn the languages locally, but they could always tell that we were not from there. And so mm -hmm. that clash of identity um, was, a, was a tough one growing up. And, and sometimes our parents uh, asked us to say that we were who we were not because that would make people not uh, suspicious or it would make us survive. And so today when I'm in Rwanda and when I have a country and not just uh, living in the country, but also participating 
and having been given a very unique opportunity to be part of Rwanda, uh, Rwanda's growth and rebuilding, I, I see that as really important and special because of the context with which I, I grew up. And I, I, um, I really, really appreciate the, the work that was done by the people that liberated the country that is Rwanda today. And that's really our president and the Rwanda Patriotic Front because they've given us a chance not just to have a belonging, but also shape the belonging uh, by make, giving us all a chance to, to take part to building our country. I find that extremely special, and uh, especially because of what I missed um, uh, growing up, not having an identity or uh, not having a place that you can truly call home where you have the opportunities, the, the, the chance to dream, the chance to want something and go after it. And it's not just something that you look at from a distance because you can't reach it. Uh, being a foreigner. So that is really, I think, the one thing that being born to Rwandan refugees shaped me, uh, the love for country, the appreciation for identity, and also uh, and seeing that we have the responsibility to define that destiny and, and being part of that. Mm. And, you know, you speak about building Rwanda, and so you are the CEO of the Rwanda Development Board. Could you explain what the RDB does? So the Rwanda Development Board is um, an organization that is a government, but um, mainly uh, responsible for shaping the private sector growth in the country. So we promote businesses, we promote investments, we promote exports, we promote entrepreneurship. So really our job is to make sure that Rwandan businesses are growing, are being born every day, and that they're succeeding because if they do they are the biggest contribution to the growth of the economy so in a nutshell our job at the rwanda development board is uh, you know promoting economic development of rwanda by increasing the role of the private sector in that development agenda so that's really what the rdb is about we're also if i may say a one-stop center for private sector to deal with government in many countries that you might be aware of, we have um, many institutions that are supporting the private sector development in that country. So you have an, an institution in charge of investments, another one in charge of exports, company registration, tourism, skills development. But all of that for us is in one organization. And uh, we are a one-stop center where the private sector can get all these services, uh, get their licenses, their companies registered, their investments registered, access to the key services they want, like uh, tax administration from one organization so they don't have to run around so many institutions. And that's really our way of um, making it really easy for the government uh, to give services to the private sector so that the private sector can quickly contribute to the economy. And I, you know, having read about you, I know that the RDB has seen a lot of success under your leadership. And so I kind of want to know what, what do you think leadership should look like? Oh, I, and that's always a, a very interesting story because I honestly believe that Rwanda would never be what it is today. I mean, having come from literally a basket case in 1994 mm. to being um, an example that is quoted by so many institutions and newspapers and media all over the world as a success story. I think the success story is, is evolving and keeps growing, but it's already seen in, in many people's eyes as... Um, um, a good level of success story. Now, what is it that made Rwanda come from a basket case mm -hmm. to an example of, um, of what countries can quote it in many different ways and how quickly the economy is growing, uh, the investment climate, 
gender equality, uh, corruption levels very low, peace and security, cleanliness of a country, uh, environment and green um, picture of the country. All these are the areas that you will always see Rwanda quoted in as um, a leading example. I believe all of that was possible because of leadership. You know, Rwanda is relatively a small country in terms of size of market and population. Rwanda hardly has any natural resources that could finance its economic development. Rwanda had very few educated people if you compared with other countries like Ghana, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, South Africa, all these countries. Kenya had a lot more educated people and Rwanda was really among the least educated countries in Africa or even in the world. So how can such a country that doesn't have resources, doesn't have money, doesn't have educated people, become a leading example in these areas that I talked about? Leadership. It really is about leadership. And, um, and I think that leadership, both at the level of the president himself, who's uh, leading and directing the vision of the country, but also the way that leadership translated and developed other leadership levels across the country so that the leadership values are spread across the country. So what should leadership look like, uh, having that context? I think leadership should be people-centered. It's really about the people that you're serving, whether you're um, a business leader or whether you are a political leader, there are people behind your leadership. And everything you do, every decision you do must be about those people. If, you, if a leader forgets putting the people first and their interests first, that leadership will never succeed. So I think leadership first and foremost is about the people that uh, the leader is serving. Number two, leadership is about service. Leadership is not about privilege. Leadership is not about power. Leadership is not about um, recognition. Leadership is about service. And I think if anybody begins to misunderstand leadership to be those other things other than service, that leadership uh, fails. But if leadership is about service, what then does it mean? That's the third element in my view, which is results. If you serve people, you actually get results because you improve their lives, you improve the indicators, you make them better off than they were. So um, I think in summary, that is what I would really call a leadership about people and people meaning inclusive. Everybody must be part of the leadership, not just men, not just women, not just children, not just adults. Everybody should see themselves in the leadership. Um, uh, it's about people, it's about service, and it's about results. I love that answer. But also then with this leadership, of course, there are challenges. So what are the greatest challenges in your work? Mm -hmm. So um, the biggest challenges um, around our work, um, first of all, the, 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 what, at the country level, what we are trying to do and what our president has been trying to build over the last 26 years has been changing the mindset of the people to become... Uh, uh, partners in what you think uh, we all collectively want to achieve. So um, to be able to become a top achiever, to be able to become inclusive, you can imagine the, the history of Rwanda, very divisive politics, people broken according to ethnic groups, which wasn't helpful for anybody. Uh, so people tolerating each other's differences and, um, and, 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 and seeing each other as one people who respect each other and who need each other required a, a, a very strong mind shift. And I think a lot has been achieved um, in the leadership journey that we have in achieving that mindset. 
but I think it's it's still work in progress. But I also think that has been the big the, the biggest challenge that we've seen really changing the people's minds. And if you if you if you really see the story of Rwanda, we changed our mindset in many ways. First of all, just you know, even small behaviors like throwing rubbish on the streets. Uh, Rwanda is seen as a very clean country, but it took a whole leadership uh, journey to change the mindset of people that look, you don't have to live in a dirty environment. You deserve cleanliness. You know, um, the mindset of even just we had people that found it so comfortable to spit on the streets. Everywhere you go, you just spit. Luckily, there was no COVID-19 at the time, <laughs> but you can imagine. So that culture of spitting and educating people, telling them, look, you don't spit. It's not hygienically correct or wearing shoes. People just comfortable to go around wear, without wearing shoes and thinking they don't deserve to wear shoes. And then they get uh, jiggers. I don't know if you know what jiggers are, but you know, on their feet, and that's uh, health-wise not, not it's not not good. But encouraging everybody to wear shoes. And now many Rwandans everywhere you go, they'll be wearing even if they're not uh, they don't have a lot of income, they'll wear shoes from a hygiene point of view. So these things of uh, changing the mindset, I think, has been the number one challenge uh, that we've had to deal with, including changing the mind shift, the mindsets of people who view us. Because people are looking at us as, oh, Rwanda, they had a genocide, or they have issues, you know, it's a small country, a small economy, you can't do business there because, you know, but over the years, we have changed the mindset of investors by investing in how quickly we can give you a very good business environment, like we've done in RDB, where there were challenges like electricity, cost of electricity, of cost, cost of transport, we have dealt with those issues. And... Over time, investors now have changed their mindset about what Rwanda is. They see us as attractive for investment. So I think that issue of changing mindset is probably the single most uh, 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 challenging uh, part of the journey that we've had. But we've seen very good progress, and it continues as work in progress. And then in your professional but also personal life, when you have challenges or tough moments, you know, for example, COVID, what... Is, is there a phrase or a quote that keeps you going, you know, sort of a, a faith or something that keeps you pushing forward? What keeps me pushing forward is to see what my ancestors went through and I see that I am privileged. Whatever circumstances I'm having, I'm privileged. Think about it. Our grandparents, our uncles uh, who are older than us could hardly live to the age that I am uh, today. Life expectancy was very low. Uh, they lived under very difficult circumstances. Uh, the disease burden uh, that they had, uh, they lived a big part of their life as refugees in refugee camps. Uh, so whenever I face any challenge, I look at what other people uh, went through and uh, I'm like, you know, whatever the challenge it is, I am privileged. And um, let me focus on the privilege that I, that, that, that I have and uh, count my blessings. And then uh, this challenge is nothing compared to what those other people had. And uh, I talk a lot about uh, Rwanda's story and Rwanda's journey. But one challenge is um, for us to have a country that we call our own, like I have explained. Uh, some people sacrificed their lives and went to liberate the country. They went to fight in the bush. They took up. So before 1994, I don't know how much you know about Rwanda, but Rwanda was uh, very divided on ethnic uh, lines. And if you are not of a certain ethnic group, you are not allowed to come to the country. You had to you know, stay a refugee, which is what my parents and my grandparents uh, did. They had to stay outside the country. And um, um, th there was no politics at the time that accommodated everybody. 
And so a group of young men and women went to the bush and said, no, we have to fight for our country. Nothing comes priceless. We have to pay the price. Many of them died uh, during the struggle, but majority of them made it uh, to, to where Rwanda is today. So if some people took that challenge of liberating a country, sacrificing their lives, and many of them actually died, and then they did that so we can have a country, and I do have a country that has given me a chance not just to be a citizen, but also to be part of the government and to lead in the government. Somebody sacrificed that, our liberators, um, the, the, the Rwanda Patriotic Front did that. So what challenge can I really claim to have? <laughs> People who did all these things and sacrificed their lives. So whenever I have a challenge, I think about that. I think about what the greatest challenges have been overcome by other people, some of whom are living and we see them today. Uh, and that just helps me accept my challenge and deal with it and focus on what is actually really important. Mm, that's, yeah, that's like my mom, I think, is so forgiving and wise and open. But yet I remember she lived through apartheid. So if she's able to be that now after living through that, mm. what am I complaining about? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly my attitude. <laughs> so this year, the World Health Organization announced that you're winning the, you are one of the founding members of the WHO Foundation. Could you tell us what the foundation's mission is? So the WHO Foundation is an independent grant-making um, um, foundation, and it was set up to support the World Health Organization. What we saw, first of all, is that it's very important for the World Health Organization to be supported, to play the global health convening role that it has. There's so many people supporting health, their NGOs, their organizations, their governments, but you always need a global leader who supports the world when, the, when, when, when it's needed. And I think it has become most clear with uh, the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was a new pandemic, very few people knew anything about it. Um, it took so long for the world to actually accept that we have a serious challenge called the pandemic. I don't think it was obvious for most people at the beginning, but the World Health Organization is who we looked up to. Is it a pandemic? Is it an epidemic? Is it, uh, uh, is it, does it spread through the air? If I breathe out, do I spread it? Um, these scientific uh, epidemiological uh, details were things that everyone, the whole world, whether it's the poor countries or the rich countries, everyone equally was looking at the World Health Organization for answers. And so we really must empower the World Health Organizations to do its work. And this foundation, even though it's independent of the World Health Organization, its mission is to raise money from those sources that were not traditionally part of the, the, the fundraising for the World Health Organization, in particular, the private sector, businesses, corporates, and high net worth individuals so that they can uh, raise money to support uh, the work that the World Health Organization does. So 70% of the money or thereabout that we will be raising will be going to the World Health Organization and the balance will be not to just run the foundation but also to support other health initiatives. So I'm very honored to be uh, part of uh, such a noble mission uh, that has a uh, global impact and um, that is useful for the people of the world. And the mission is really to raise money to support um, the, the, the world to be a better and healthy, a more healthy uh, world. Mm -hmm. yeah. how, how has the pandemic affected the work of the RDB? Well, like many countries, um, our work depended very, much, depended very much on how we interacted with the rest of the world. So tourism is one of the big, big sectors that we're in charge of. Tourism is expected to reduce by between 70 and 80% this year. You can imagine how big that is. 
Investment is expected to be 40% of what it was last year. So this year we're going to uh, achieve um, less results than we've, we are accustomed to doing over the last many years. And that's because the pandemic affected um, the, the, the work that we're doing. So we expect uh, investments, we expect um, tourism to slow down, we expect the economy uh, to grow at a very, very, to, to, uh, to maybe even to just stay stagnant from what it was before. We don't expect it uh, to grow as fast as it has always been. And, and by the way, 2019 was one of our best years in almost every sector. Our economy grew at 9.4% last year, which was the best over you know, many years uh, so far, and also among the highest growth rates in the world. Our tourism grew by 17%, which was also one of um, our best year-on-year -year growth rates over the last five years. And our investments, we had a record 2.4 billion worth of investments, more than we had ever had uh, before. So we did, we did really well in 2019, and 2020 was supposed to be even better, but as I said, it's going to slow down everything. Our, our hope is that um, the, the health aspects become better because the economy is very much dependent on how the health works. So I'm hoping we can get a vaccine soon and I'm hoping that the vaccine can be distributed as fast as possible, hopefully by a good mid next year. If uh, many countries are able to access the vaccines, that means our economies can bounce back much faster. And I'm counting on 2021, 2022 to really see a better year than we've seen in 2020. But what we've done as a, an organization is to try and mitigate uh, the impact of um, the COVID-19. The impact is definitely going to be there and it's going to be negative, but to mm -hmm. try and mitigate it as much as possible. So we put in place uh, at the country level something called the Economic Recovery Plan, which has strategies of reducing the impact of COVID-19. We put in place a fund worth $100 million and we hope to raise more money to increase that. And the whole essence for all of that is to really see how we can finance sectors that have been affected by COVID-19 by giving them uh, cheaper interest rates for working capital and to restructure their loans, to, to reduce the burden of um, paying back the loans so that they can recover much faster. And we're seeing um, that's really helpful. But yes, everything we've done is to really try and reduce the negative impact of the pandemic. And we've also done other reforms such as the taxes, relaxing some of the taxes, uh, postponing some of the tax structures, um, and really trying to just make it um, as, you know, reduce the burden for the businesses and for the economy, and, and we expect that will help. But 2020 is, gonna, is not going to be the year that we've been accustomed to having in terms of uh, the results we achieve. I mean, it's refreshing to speak to a government official in a country that is acknowledging that, like, the economy is based on the health instead of the other way around. So fix, deal with the health problem. Yeah. Because here, we still are in denial about everything happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then just speaking to you, I could you know, feel your love for Rwanda. And so I wonder, what is your vision for the future of Rwanda? Well, my vision is, for, is a prosperous Rwanda. Um, <laughs> a prosperous Rwanda and prosperous in an inclusive way. Uh, really for Rwandans to be better off um, in terms of what the country is worth and um, uh, for it to be inclusive where all Rwandans see that their lives are more prosperous uh, than that of their parents or than that that they had five years or ten years ago. But also my vision for Rwanda in addition to wishing that Rwanda becomes um, a prosperous one is, is um, for Rwanda to be 
to, to be what we've been pursuing, which is a country of values and a country that sees itself as self-worthy mm -hmm. uh, at the global stage and that demands respect and earns respect because it's, it has values and it has worth beyond just money and beyond just prosperous, but a country of values. And I think we're on, on the journey of building that. Even when you spoke about, you know, changing people's mindsets, it was always about like, you deserve this. It, it, it goes back to dignity and, and making sure that people feel dignified. Absolutely. And, and I saw you gave a speech where you said you believe in Africa. And I love that being a South African. And I wonder if you could explain what you meant by that when you said, I believe in Africa. Well, I believe in the, in the worth that Africa has globally. I believe that Africans are capable, equally as capable as Europeans, Americans. Mm -hmm. I believe that Africans are competitive. And when Africans go and study at Harvard or at uh, these very top schools, Oxford, Africans excel. So Africans are capable. I believe that Africa has the resources it has, it needs to become one of the richest continents in the world. We have people, we have natural resources, we have a lot of land. Many countries that are uh, richer than Africa or African countries don't have a lot of the things that we need. The problem is that part of colonialism, part of the history of the continent, part of the history of our countries Africans have been brainwashed sometimes not to believe in themselves, mm -hmm. not to believe that they are as competitive as an American or as a European, not to believe that they too have something that those people that you're, you're talking to need. And so when I said that I believe in Africa, it's really that Africa has every right equally, like any other person from anywhere in the world to claim the best things in, in life. So I shouldn't be made to feel that because something is made in Rwanda, it's not um, as good as something made in Germany or made in, um, in, 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 in the US. I should not be made to believe that when I go to negotiate on the table, that because somebody has come from a Western country, that they can dictate what they want and they just accept it. Um, I believe that Africa should know what it wants and express what it wants. And that party should also respect what Africa demands and Africa should remain confident and steadfast in demanding for what they want. Unfortunately, many times we've been brainwashed to think that we don't deserve those things. That's why people come to our country and give us a small check and take our resources. Mm -hmm. Or they come to our country and um, uh, you know, dictate the agreement and we just sign. Uh, or make us believe that maybe we don't have very good qualified people to do the kind of jobs that we're talking about, yet we actually do. So I think that this notion of Africa believing in itself and giving um, itself worth is something that we all must really teach our children and insist. And I must say that I, I, I think this was also very much opened up in my, in my head uh, from our president. I have worked uh, very closely with the president and I've had so many speeches. Of, and he's just right on that note all the time uh, when he emphasizes that uh, we, we should have something we call agachiro. It's a random term, but it's a very loaded term. It's just one word, but it's agachiro, but it, it, it's a, it, it's a, a multivitamin that has everything you need to become a decent human being. Mm. Agachiro means uh, dignity, it means self-worth, it means ambition, it means um, 
being resilient, it means uh, demanding the best for yourself because you believe that you deserve the best. All that is, is in one Kinyarwanda word that means agachiro. And our president has been teaching us this thing that, you know, don't allow people to, to dictate, don't allow people to, to tell you you're not worth it because you are. And I, I believe in addition to, to, to leadership um, that I said is the single most important factor in Rwanda's growth, the fact that that leadership has put in place the, the importance of value from partners, I think has created a lot of value for us. And I think Africa and Africans must believe in themselves, must um, also, but of course, it's not just believing. You must back up believing with developing the resources, developing the courage, developing the understanding. The, it, it's not an empty shell of just saying, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself because you have prepared yourself. You have done the work, you have invested. And uh, when you go to, to, to partner or to talk to anyone, you're believing in yourself because there is something that is backing uh, that belief. And um, yeah, I really think that that's probably the most important word, Agachiro, that uh, I can repeat. Well, if I need a negotiator, I'm sending you. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I spoke to Kula Fofana recently, and, and I asked her about her experience as part of the inaugural class of the Amujai Initiative. And I'm interested to hear what your experience was, because I know that you are also a member of that inaugural class. Yes, yes. So I am a member of the Amuje um, Center. It's uh, Ellen Johnson, President Ellen Johnson's uh, uh, Presidential Center for Women and Development Initiative, and uh, it's really a, a great platform to build women's solidarity of leaders. And uh, I've seen that uh, it's very important as women to have a, a network of um, leaders that we can hear from, learn from, share experiences. And in doing that, really raise the ambition of uh, women leaders to do more and serve more. And we've had uh, a lot of sessions to, to discuss, to exchange experiences. And they brought so many women leaders uh, all over the world to come and talk to, to the women and to really share experiences, their journeys. And I believe this kind of platform is very important, not just in nurturing uh, leadership, but also in inspiring great leadership because we see what others have done. So that's really been my experience as part of the Amuja leadership and really uh, very appreciative of um, President Johnson initiatives to get this uh, up and running and the time, the, the thinking, the resources that go around making it work, which is really appreciated. And who are the women who have inspired you? Well, I think First of all, the, 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 the woman that has inspired me the most is uh, my mother. Uh, my mother mm -hmm. was, uh, my mother and grandmother were refugees um, for a very long uh, part of their history. And I think that they represented to me uh, resilience. And, um, you know, just, just, just keep fighting, keep going. Things will get better along the way. And uh, today, both my mother and grandmother are in Rwanda. And they were both born in Rwanda, but le left uh, for over 30 years uh, in, in, uh, as refugees and struggling to make it day, you know, every day. And then not knowing that one day they'll come back to their country of birth and enjoy a very peaceful, progressive, uh, safe country, which is where they are now. They're retired. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandmother is 91. My mother is 71. 
and uh, they're really enjoying a country that is very stable, very progressive, and they're seeing their children grow up in a in a safe country. And I think if it was not because of their resilience and their hard work and commitment um, to to really raise children and and hope that the future you know is going to be better and doing your part today uh, and knowing that that part would be rewarded in the future, we would not we would not be here. So I think. Those two women are very strong pillars in my in my heritage and in my history that give me a lot of strength uh, that women can actually drive, um, you know, agendas and be part of a, you know, a good a good story. And so I think those are the ones I would really point out. I would also point out um, the the Rwandan women who participated in the liberation of this country. So right. Um, obviously the the the, the the biggest figure uh, that has led the liberation of Rwanda is our president Paul Kagame, and um, uh, you know, leading the rev you know the liberation, but also leading Rwanda to become you know the the, the beacon of hope that it is today. I, I think we very much uh, owe it to our president. But I also know that there are women uh, leaders who participated in in the liberation, and who have also you know who led. Um, a very big part of the agenda of the liberation. And I think those women not only opened doors for other women like ourselves to join government later, but also to really uh, demonstrate that women could become strong partners in politics, strong partners in development, strong partners in business, and strong partners in rebuilding the country. And I think those women have also been a source of inspiration uh, for me. And um, again, women have been very strong inspirations, but also I think having men uh, who believe in women and who support women is also very mm -hmm. important. And uh, I, I've talked about my president, I think is one example of um, uh, those uh, leaders who really empower women and, and not just talk about it, but really uh, live it practically. But also um, my father, I think has also been a, a very strong supporter of uh, getting you know his daughters like myself to their highest potential. My dad is you know one of my biggest cheerleaders. Anything that he sees that uh, is positive about me, he'll be the first to call me and say, I saw this in the newspapers. I saw you give me <laughs> You did so well. Oh my God. Sometimes I think he exaggerates how well I've done. <laughs> but it still feels good. And, um, and, and, and he's been consistent. I, I know when we were children, my dad would get our report cards. And, and when we did really well, he would take his report card and go to his nearest, uh, you know, bar where he would uh, spend evenings and show everybody in the bar his children's uh, report cards. So I think wow. those, <laughs> those cheerleaders, uh, I, my dad has been very consistent. And I think we also need not just women inspiration, but also men who really support women and really make, make you know, women have the environment to thrive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so then... What would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? Oh, I think my biggest fear for humanity is the ever-increasing inequality of income and um, access to the needs or basic needs of people. And I think that um, it's even possible to get worse than it is today, where you have one part of the world where people cannot find food um, that uh, that they can that they need, extreme poverty, while on the other hand you have people who are extremely rich that they you know they can afford to look after their dogs and their puppies and give them 
five star lives and give them executive and surgeries and yeah, yeah yeah and and give them jewelry and give them minders and give them all these luxuries uh when they're people that are in another part of the world who can't even find food to eat that's that sounds obscene and extremely wrong and my biggest fear mm-hmm. is this getting worse and worse and worse and and then and human beings not working together for shared prosperity and uh you know being able to know what is enough and how you can actually improve other people's lives and be interested not only in you know accumulating your own wealth but also you know sharing that with uh, with communities you know all over the world and and that's really the one thing that i that i fear that is going to become worse and worse this inequality um mm-hmm. in in income and in um, in access to needs uh just widening and and that's very possible when you see where the world is going today. And so then what would you say is your greatest hope for humanity? Uh, my greatest hope <laughs> especially after you know uh, experiences like the pandemic the COVID-19 pandemic yep which has shown that uh you know there's no way you can in a sustainable way progress without others. Like you move together uh as a people as a community the more sustainable your own life is i think that is one biggest lesson we had from covid-19 and my biggest hope is that uh this has been a wake up call for policymakers this has been a wake up call for people to to really care about you know the the, the shared uh, humanity that we have and invest in it and um and and unfortunately when you look at um even just access to vaccines of covid-19 where we you'd have expected that people would have made very big lessons from you still find that uh you know for example vaccines today even if you want to buy as a poor country it's not easy for you to access because developed countries have dominated and have pre-bought almost all the vaccines from the companies that made it without thinking even though mm-hmm. there was um a bit of talk of how we can share that with the the rest of the world i think that hasn't really been uh, the case but still i think there's a lot of people talking about it it's being written about there's so many advocates and i think it's beginning to um create attention which i believe would i think is a lesson that uh, brings me back to my hope that we can take lessons from this covid-19 and take lessons from what we've seen and get more interested and invested in shared uh, humanity absolutely well claire thank you so much for speaking with me and coming on everyday ubuntu um i mean i i had a great time and you know i'm so thankful that people like you are leaders on the continent Oh thank you so much. I appreciate that and apologies that we couldn't uh, get together earlier. Um but uh, thank you for your understanding and I uh, wish you all the best at Ubuntu. In Rwanda we call we would call that Ubuntu. <laughs> mhm. Yep. Yes. Well, thank you so much and take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ngomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.